Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Benjamin Earl Evans, a design lead at Airbnb working on inclusive design. So I'm sure you all know about Airbnb, but it's the online marketplace for arranging or offering lodging. So with Benjamin, we talked about building products. And you know, as product builders, we always say that we're building for the customers. But in this era of customer delight and design thinking, how often do we actually talk about accessibility and inclusivity of these products? So with Ben, naturally, we spent most of the episode talking about inclusive design. What stood out to me in particular were the lengths that Ben and his team took to make sure that their products were inclusive. We can't build beautiful inclusive products that people love if the people behind them aren't accounting for inclusivity as well. So Ben and his team look for ways to create a better, diverse work environment by encouraging people to talk about their biases in a productive way. And let me stop there for a second. So biases are something we all have, right? Well, they're often perceived as negative and things that we need to address. They're things that every single person has. So with Ben, not only was he driving inclusive design within Airbnb, but the product team he worked with was also responsible for planning cross-cultural workshops for Airbnb hosts because there's a big push within Airbnb to understand cultural differences and help hosts to become better hosts. So all of this got me to thinking about how the product team's work never truly ends. And I ask you, what are some ways that you can use inclusive design to improve your product? And what are other projects maybe you can take on inside your business to deliver the best product experience? Let me know at ebodic at pendo.io or reach out to me at ebodic on Twitter. So welcome, lovers of product. Today I am here with Ben, who's an inclusive design lead at Airbnb. So Ben, why don't you give us a little overview of your background to kick things off? Sure. Um, well, I didn't actually start my career as a designer. I, you know, this is going back more years than I care to remember. I started initially as an actor. And you know, you're, you're working the stage, you're interviewing, you're auditioning. And I remember needing a website at the time. And being a struggling actor, didn't have any money to pay anyone to design a site for me. So I taught myself design in the evenings. And after a couple of years, my my love of acting diminished when I realized that what I enjoyed the most was actually the, the rehearsal process, not the performance. And so I decided to double down on my agency business and grew that over a number of years and then pivoted from that point. Once I got a bit frustrated with the agency life, the constant hunt for clients, pivoted to actually try and build a startup that was going to solve a problem for performing artists, which is how you find work. And so we built out called Get Cast, as in to get cast in TV and film. It's like the LinkedIn for the entertainment industry. And that, you know, really gave me this deep dive into using design to build far-reaching platforms and, and, and products and services that are very integrated. We pivoted a number of times, and along the way, I started doing a lot of traveling, designing in four different cultures as I was building up my startup. And then at a certain point, Airbnb actually reached out when I was in Vietnam, they had seen an Instagram post and they sent me this 
very simple email, which was, noticed you, do you want to talk about design? And I thought, well, yes, I do want to talk about design. And that kind of kicked off the journey. And that was, yeah, just over two and a half years ago is when they first reached out. And, and since then, I've been with them all the way. So tell us about the early experiences at Airbnb. Oh, it was confusing coming in through the door. I'd been self-employed all of my life. And so it was a massive change moving from being self-employed and traveling and working in different countries through to suddenly being a part of this, this huge company and having to try and understand, you know, how do you run or how do you develop products and services that have to be both local and hyper-global at the same time? How do you do that within a fixed environment, namely one location, our headquarters? And I found it confusing initially. I found it that there was a lot of challenges with me adapting what I knew from being the CEO or being an agency owner, these kinds of things. How do I adapt these to working in a far more collaborative level where I have a number of leads on my team and we collaborate and make team decisions where we're a self-contained unit that is focused on tackling discrimination, yet at the same time we function within a larger product org that is trying to really uh, create meaningful experiences for hosts and guests. And so there was a steep learning curve for me coming in the door. And it's one of those things that has really kind of, what I believe actually helped me grow a lot as a designer, was diving in at that deep end to try and tackle a problem that no one has really tackled within a company that is largely at the forefront of what they're doing. Yeah, and so here we are today. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about the challenges. You know, there's a lot of product people that listen to this podcast that are entrepreneurs or involved in startups and then, you know, maybe they move to a large company or maybe they're acquired by a large company. Talk to me about the challenges of working from, you know, you starting as kind of your shop, you're, you're the man, to part of a, a large corporate entity that, you know, like you said, is leading in their space. So there are, I think there are probably some common challenges, which is like the challenges of collaboration. Because the way that we organize our teams at Airbnb is that they're multiple self-contained teams. And so every team is normally cross-functional, meaning that they have everything they need to ship product. And so we also, within these self-contained units, all define how we work with one another. And so you can imagine having an organization that is composed of tens, hundreds of teams, each one with their own way of working, that then have to try and collaborate across different parts of the product. And some of the early challenges that I know that I faced was a frustration on why isn't there a singular way of doing things? Why isn't it that we, this is the way that we ship product, this is the singular piece of software we use for everything? And it took me really a while to kind of grapple and understand that what I perceived to be ambiguity and confusion sometimes was also a great source of strength because it meant that we have to be very entrepreneurial in the way that we approach collaboration, that we are a company built on relationships. And so we continually reach out to try and understand one another and our teammates and our different cross-functional partners. And, you know, as I said, there are, there are some downsides to that. It can sometimes be inefficient, but ultimately it is also a great source of strength because it forces you to continually seek out different people and different ways of working and different ways of understanding problems. And that constant process of negotiation, I do believe results in a better product overall because you have so many different lenses that can inform the way that you think and you see and you act when, when making products. So tell us about your group at Airbnb and how you, your group solved problems for Airbnb. 
So in 2016, there was a trending hashtag, hashtag Airbnb while black, which was black guests sharing their experiences of being discriminated against on during their Airbnb experience. And that led to the creation of my team, the anti-discrimination team. Now, um, this was really one of those flashpoints for us as a company because discrimination goes against everything that we stand for. Our, our mission is belonging. And so the team was created and Anne Diaz, one of the early researchers, was actually instrumental in the creation of this cross-functional product team. When I joined, the team had done a couple of different experiments, um, but we were still grappling with the question, can you use design to solve or at least tackle a problem like discrimination? And so I remember arriving on you know, my, my first day, first week, and feeling this complete sense of confusion of, you know, how do you tackle a problem that no one has solved before? And I remember looking extensively at the peers in the space. We ended up uncovering that there really wasn't any precedent for this kind of work. And so we set about defining how we're going to do it ourselves. And we, we turned to a process that a lot of people know, like human-centered design, design thinking. And we did a lot of research with external groups people from underrepresented groups. We also spoke to experts trying to understand what are some of the larger initiatives that exist in American society that we can leverage? What are some existing methods that potentially could work to help us shift uh, people away from a place of discriminatory behavior and into one that is more inclusive? And we immediately hit you know, a, a number of different roadblocks because you can imagine a scenario where you have ideated a whole load of different ideas and now it comes down to trying to prioritize which ones of those ideas you're going to put onto your roadmap. And we got stuck. We couldn't agree on how to prioritize which projects we should prioritize first. And I remember there being this terrifying moment I had one evening coming home thinking, why is it that we can't agree? Is it that our diversity, our difference of opinions and thoughts are preventing us from being able to reach a cohesive vision for our roadmap? And so you can imagine the, the terrifying scenario of like, anti-discrimination team, like diversity become undermined anti-discrimination team kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be good. You know, and so it's like panicking at home thinking like, is this going to be like a headline, like design lead loses faith in diversity kind of thing. And it's like, no, it's, it's not that. What we ended up having to do was take a step back and really create a space to have a discussion about our own biases and how they actually interact with the way, with us, how they interfere with our ability to collaborate and how we can align uh, against us along a singular vision for how we can drive change and, and develop a product roadmap. And so we, we ended up doing that. And then what that has now led to is we now have the ability to ideate, use similar kinds of processes that exist in a lot of product teams, but align on a roadmap that we then conduct different, we change the experiences and conduct experiments to try and figure out how can we boost acceptance for everyone on the platform. And so that's like the product part of the team's work. And then we have a much larger umbrella, which is about changing culture. And within that, we have things like we create workshops for our host and guest community, trying to find ways to help them understand uh, how cross-cultural differences can interfere with their ability to connect. We also do things to do with our internal culture, like how is it we can change our workflows to make them more inclusive? How can we help people acknowledge their own biases in a way that is ultimately productive and doesn't help, doesn't make people feel you know, ashamed for having these biases. So though we are a, a product team, that's probably just one pillar of the work that we do. We try and you know, be much broader because bias exists in everything that we do. So 
for our listeners, talk to us about this concept of inclusive design. Sure. Um, inclusive design, I suppose the way that I really look at it as a, maybe as a definition, it's about including people, obviously, but it's about finding ways to bring people into your process for creating products so that you design and create with them instead of for them. The ultimate goal is to create a, a product or a service that is as accessible to as many people as possible, many different backgrounds as possible, without the product needing to change in response to their needs. And it's something that I believe everyone uh, should be invested in, all product professionals, because sometimes it can be viewed to be this fringe thing, oh, we need to make the product accessible, we need to make it inclusive. But when your product is inclusive, it means that it's appealing to more people than ever before. And who among us doesn't want what we create to have the maximum amount of appeal um, and to resonate deeply with the people that we're trying to help? Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. If you could recommend an action you know, to create more inclusive workspaces and products, what would you want people to do? Singular action. Well, maybe it doesn't need to be a single action okay. <laughs> because that maybe is too constraining. Let's say if you, if you think about actions, yes. you know. Actions, um, I think one of the first things I like to encourage people to do is to speak to people who are different than you. And it sounds very, very simple, but it is actually quite profound. As, as humans, we absolutely have a bias towards spending time with people who we at least perceive to be the same of us, same as us. And of course, you know, of course, it's a survival mechanism built over, you know, hundreds of years of humanity. But what that can also do is it creates a scenario where we view the world through our lens and through people whose lenses we believe to be the same as ours. And we exclude everyone who doesn't, or at least we believe, doesn't view the world through this specific lens. And simply the act of speaking to people from different backgrounds can really help us bridge these divides and actually broaden the lens that we have to encompass far more viewpoints. I mean, oh, and something to kind of say within that, there is the act of seeking out people who are from different backgrounds around you, spending time with colleagues who maybe you don't directly work with. But if you do find that within your organization, it's hard to find people who you perceive to be different than you, it, it's kind of, it suggests maybe you need to check the hiring yeah, practices. It says something about the organization, yeah, right? Exactly that. And so you do, you need to, there are systemic challenges that need to be addressed within that. But even in the way that we conduct user research, ensuring that there's representation amongst the, the, the customer segments that you're speaking to. There are also things like little questions that you can use to really challenge your own biases and in doing so become more inclusive. One of them is, a, is just a question that I came up with when I first joined Airbnb and have kind of been testing out with our teams, which is just the question, who are we missing? Again, it sounds really simple, but the first step towards being more inclusive is to recognize where we're being exclusive, where we are choosing directly or indirectly to not bring certain groups into our processes. And so by asking when you're in a product kickoff, saying, who are we missing? Well, who's missing around the table? Who should be here? Who could be here? When we're doing our user research, who are the groups who are missing from this that we are not acknowledging? When we are doing our user testing, like, who is it that is that we are not testing with? And is this a conscious decision that we're making? Or is it just an accidental byproduct of us viewing the world through a very specific lens? And so, so much, there, there are a lot of other things that you can do to be inclusive within the way you work and, and within what you create. 
But I think the very first step is about recognizing where you're not being inclusive and the act of asking who are we missing and actively seeking out people who you perceive to be different than you. I think that is an important first step. Yeah, and I think there's often a misconception when people think about, you know, designing to be inclusive, thinking about it as maybe a task or a hassle, as opposed to, like you mentioned before, this idea of opening up your mission, your solution, your product to more people, Yes, which I think is an, an important perspective for people to take. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's challenging when, when we think about topics like inclusion because there's this level of shame that we as society have attached to this notion of having bias. <laughs> or to be biased about something. And there's this lack of acknowledgement that all humans have bias. It's a core survival mechanism that, that is essential for the way that we function every single day. And if we can find ways to you know, remove the stigma that's attached to having bias, then we create a scenario where more people can be more inclusive. We've lowered the barrier to entry for, for inclusiveness. And you just get all of these far-ranging, wonderful effects the more inclusive we are. You boost every single business metric. If you're selling a product and you're able to sell to more communities of different backgrounds, great. Who doesn't want that? If you're building something and it can, and it can resonate deeper with different people, fantastic. You as a product person or a designer, I mean, who doesn't want their work to resonate at that deep level? I think it's just the, there is this hurdle that we have to overcome initially, which is thinking of inclusive design or to be inclusive as this burden. Yeah, I like going back to that point you made about we all have biases because I, I, I do think people think of biases as horrible things that should be eliminated. And while I think we need to move around our biases, in a lot of cases people think only some people have biases. But the fact is everybody does exactly. in some way. And, and it goes back to your diversity story. If you acknowledge the biases you have and make sure you're addressing those openly and transparently, you can get to a much better spot in collaboration. Exactly that. And you also find out that you have commonality amongst your biases, which is which is just a funny kind of thing to quote unquote bond over as teammates. <laughs> like, you know, we all have uh, like confirmation bias when we're, when we're working together. We all believe that, you know, our solution is the one that will work. We all have these, the stereotyping bias. We all think that we understand certain groups, even though we don't have enough knowledge to support these things. So there are all of these things that we have in common that we don't talk about. And in not talking about them, we give these biases this power over what we create and how we create together, when it doesn't need to be so. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. And then it, one thing I wanted to dig into before I forget to, you talked about this, this concept of how we view things through a lens, right? And we, we typically view products through a very technical lens um, as a very straightforward solution to a problem that we have. How should we be perceiving products and experiences instead? I don't know if it's necessarily instead, but as well as. Maybe. Okay. Because there is a, we, we do in you know in the product world anchor a lot into what we perceive to be very simple solutions to problems. And to me, that's great because it gets us to create something fairly quickly, fairly efficiently that we believe meets a need. But in order to really be aware of the effects that what we create has on larger on the larger product life cycle, on our users' life cycle, on society at large, we have to shift our thinking to be a little bit more all-encompassing. And so to embrace the full experience, I believe that we just need to be, it's asking the question, at what cost when we're creating? We normally say, we want to create this. 
well, we want to create a solution to this. If we add in the question, at what cost, it forces us to think at a much longer timeline for the work that we're doing. And so, you know, let's take, for example, home sharing. Like, the problem we want to solve is that we want to give people better access or more access to travel. But then if we ask, at what cost, we start to think, well, the cost is there will be different travelers in different communities. And what will that do to these different communities? How will that change the makeup of cities? We can take a similar comparison if you think like a, a, a social network. If we want to create something that digitally connects the world, then we say, well, at what cost? We start to think, well, what happens when you place people in a scenario where they have to confront that people are different from them and, and the conflicts that may arise out of that? And so to get us to embrace this much more you know, experiential, this longer-term look of the products and services we create, I do believe we just need to find ways to start thinking about what is the downstream effect, what is the cost, what is the effects beyond that of us solving a problem for a particular user. Hmm. So you mentioned one test or experiment you can run on products, right, which is the at what cost. What else can you do to try to avoid those unintended consequences? I think a lot of the work is preventative. It's difficult to measure the, the true downstream effects on, on inclusion within the products and services you create, but something you can absolutely do is change the inputs, the way that you work, who you work with, and how you work. And so something as simple as ensuring you have good representation within your team and that the way that you work is focused on more objective decision-making that reduces or removes bias from the decision-making process. You can ensure that when you're doing your user tests, as, as I mentioned before, when you're doing your user testing or any kind of research, that you have people who don't just represent a, a singular lens, but you have this diversity of background and experience. And if you, along the way, you, know, you can do your launch, you can create perception studies that set a baseline on what is the perception of what you've created amongst different groups. And then you can track that over time, over the life cycle of your product. Do people still feel that what you have created, do they feel that it meets their needs? Do different groups feel like they belong in the solution that you've created? So much of this work is about perception. There are, of course, hard numbers that we, that we can get to, but the perception side of it is more challenging, and so I encourage people to find a baseline that they can set. Are different groups interacting with their product? Do they feel like it's for them? Do they feel like they belong within the community you're building around your product? And then just track that over time and make sure that you're keeping that connection to these groups alive and, and, and kicking. Yeah, and then these, these product people that are building out these products have biases too, tying back into that. How do you challenge those biases in meetings? Carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody likes to be called out. And I hate the notion or even the notion of a call out that you, you know, you, you point to someone, you say, you know, that was a biased thing to say. And, and what, what are the, like, let's talk about what are those biases <laughs> that the product people tend to have or that you tend to see a lot? Um, and then maybe how do you challenge them? <laughs> so one of them is stereotyping. A stereotyping bias comes out a lot and it's, it's just the, the understanding the bias that, the bias that we have would suggest we understand the group even though we have limited data about that group. And you see this come out a lot when we're doing our, whether it be your user studies or when you're condensing these studies into personas. We're all aware of a user persona, where it's, you know, it's an 18 to 36 year old male. Well, there's kind of an understanding or at least a bias within there that that male is probably white in this instance, and they're probably English speaking. So we've inferred 
quite a lot from just two pieces of information. And so if we don't acknowledge those and find ways to get them expressed into a more detailed user spectrum as opposed to a persona, then we run the risk of people operating and building for a specific user group, even though that's not the way they've been defined in our documentation. We all suffer from optimism bias, which is really just a belief that what we've created is the right solution. And so we kind of fall in love with our solutions as product people. You see this play out again and again, people defending a design decision or, or an engineering decision as though it is the way to do it, when it's really just a way of doing it. Some of the ways that you can challenge that is just by creating this culture of experimentation. Let's start out with the assumption that we are wrong, that all of us are wrong, and that we're trying to find the solution, not necessarily the right one, but the one that works. So the backfire effect is another kind of bias, which I love. It, it, it's the fact that we double down um, on our existing beliefs when we're challenged. And we see this play out if you've been in a product meeting and it devolves into a roaring argument over some kind of choice. It's because people tend to anchor in to their beliefs. It, it ties into this confirmation bias as well. And one of the ways that we can challenge that is by finding ways to speak more about the product than about the actual person. Something that will often happen as we're debating and defending our ideas is we have hold on to them as being our ideas when we can abstract a layer and say, well, let's talk about this as a product choice versus other product choices, it removes the connection to self, which makes it easier to discuss and debate. I think ultimately, when it comes to challenging bias, we just need to do so carefully in a way that acknowledges this is what we all have, um, as opposed to you are making this decision from a particular point of bias. I also believe that we should celebrate, find ways to celebrate when people are inclusive. It's a kind of a roundabout way of tackling biases, but whenever there is an inclusive decision, you can say to someone, I, I love that you have acknowledged these other groups within the way that you're thinking about this. And it kind of sets this really nice precedent and standard that being more inclusive in our thinking and in our actions is something that we reward and celebrate, as opposed to just putting down people when they, when they are acting only in accordance with the needs of a very specific group. Hmm. So talk about you, the challenges you had when working with the product team. Like, what did you encounter? Some of the, also, some of the earlier challenges we had, as I was saying before, about how do we reach alignment about roadmaps, <laughs> about product-based decisions. When we have a cross-functional team, which we do, um, our team is from a variety of different backgrounds as well, that they all bring these wonderful insights to the table. How do you then align on a singular course of action? And so we, we realized that, number one, we had to become a lot better about creating the space to acknowledge our own biases. And then we also had to find more objective models of decision-making when we make product choices. So that that way we can use the model or a method to create a hierarchy for the work that we're going to do. And that way we can critique the hierarchy that we feel that something is going wrong. We can critique the model as opposed to this becoming an argument of personalities where I believe that these are the top three things and you believe that the other three are different, well, no, our method says this, and if it's not working, let's critique the method and change that. There's also the large challenge of how do we as a product team change culture? It's very difficult, as I'm sure you know, very difficult to create change within a company, especially a fast-growing company, and especially within one where you may have multiple work streams that can at times conflict with one another. And so some of the challenges that we've had is 
every product team at Airbnb is very well-meaning and very mission-driven. We believe in belonging. We believe in doing the right thing. However, there is no one right thing. <laughs> and you can have different teams that have metrics that help them build belonging for a specific user segment, but they don't necessarily have the bandwidth to be as inclusive as they want to be or they need to be because you have we've always got these deadlines just as any fast-growing company has. And so something that a challenge that we have had as a team is finding ways to change people's workflow. How do we get earlier into the product development life cycle? Because if we can do that, we can change the way that people are thinking in the whiteboarding, in the ideation phase, well, then it lessens the amount of friction to more inclusive action downstream. If we can, uh, some of our DLS teams, our design language teams, uh, one of whom is headed by Michael Sui, who's an accessibility expert at the company, he's done a lot of work with finding ways to make sure that our components meet web standards. Because if all of the components for our design system meet web standards, then it means that our engineers have a very low barrier to adoption to make, making things more accessible. And so the larger challenge for us as a product team is, funny enough, it's less about product and more about changing culture. And we're realizing that we have to get into people's workflows earlier and encourage more inclusive action. In the tooling that we use, we have to find ways to give subtle nods and cues. You know, when you open up Figma, giving you a cue that says, you know, define who you're working for. Who are you omitting by accident? Who is missing from the way that you're viewing this problem? And also in the components that we use, how to make sure that everything is accessible so that people can just do their best work and inclusion comes naturally. Yeah, I think that's a good transition too to talking about working together. Like, you know, you, you mentioned some things in some ways that product teams can work best with designers, but maybe we can expound on that a little bit more and maybe talk about how product managers should incorporate design thinking into their methods. Can you say that one more time for this? The second part or the whole thing? No, 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 no. Just, just the second part because there were two questions in there. <laughs> so maybe, maybe we just start managers. with, you know, how product teams work best with their designers. And then we can follow with, like, should product managers be incorporating design thinking into their methods? Absolutely. So I believe that design should be embedded from the very beginning. I also have kind of a, a flexible relationship with what a designer is. I, I tend to view everyone who creates product as being a kind of designer. And all that changes is sometimes our methods and the medium through which we use to create. But I do believe that there should be a shared ownership over design within any team because we are trying to create a solution to a problem. And this notion that there are hard barriers between the different functions, between research and engineering and product management, I just don't buy. I believe there should be clear ownership over specific outcomes. But in the collaboration process, you know, some of the best PMs I've had will jump right into the design tool and work with me on this. Uh, content strategist on, on my team, a guy called John, I, I love that he goes straight into Figma with me and helps me flesh out ideas. Our product managers and designers at Airbnb often have to define their relationship. And this probably speaks to answering your second question. We aim to define our relationship on a case-by-case -case basis. Different teams have different needs. And there are times where you know, I do PM work, absolutely. Like there are times where I'm writing one pages where I'm working with different stakeholders to try and build that alignment and the other way around. And I think the biggest challenges I've ever encountered are where PMs and designers or designers and PMs haven't been explicit about defining their relationship. How do we want to work together? 
what is our ownership, what is our shared responsibilities, and what are our individual responsibilities, and what do we do when things go wrong? So, you know, somewhere in there triggered a thought which brought me all the way back to the beginning. Your background is as an actor, right? right? And it made me think about something I'm, I'm passionate about these days as part of product, which is storytelling. Mm. So tell me about why you think, or I assume you do, maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> but, but why you think product managers and designers should embrace storytelling? Oh, I don't think they should. No. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Shit. I'm kidding. Um, storytelling, I, I view storytelling as being one of the fundamental ways that we as humans communicate. We all understand stories. <laughs> and whenever we're speaking to one another, we're telling some version of a story. Hopefully it's a good one with a beginning, middle, and end. But if that is the core way that we communicate, then that's also the core way that we persuade. And when we want to make a product choice or a decision that may affect, you know, whether it be a career or a framework or a larger product vision or the direction of the company, we do so through a story. And we need <laughs> more people to invest time in becoming better storytelling. And, I, and to be more specific about that, it's about telling data-backed stories. As I'm sure you know, in, in tech, we often say, you know, we're data-driven or we're data-informed and we use that to make the decisions that we do, but it's really the story that we lay on top of that is what persuades people and what helps us make better and better product decisions. And so I would encourage everyone to go and do an improv class, as terrifying as it is, to go and grab a book on storytelling. And there are a number of good ones, I'm trying to think of some, but it is such an important tool for communication. I I don't know how you can do without it in today's modern age. Yeah, I think that would be interesting. I've personally never done an improv test, <laughs> though uh, I may think my first real girlfriend was big into acting, and a lot of my friends growing up were, oddly enough, never done a class myself. But on, on the book side, do you, do you have ones you recommend? I know I'm putting you on the spot right now. Yeah, there's actually a book called Made to Stick by, I think it's Chip and David Heath. And it's really talking about why some ideas catch on and others don't. And they outline within it framework for creating what they call sticky ideas. And it, it, it's a really wonderful book, mainly because it just gives you a framework that you can use to create a narrative that really resonates with people, to a way of telling a story or, an idea, or expressing an idea so that it hooks people in. I also like books that aren't directly connected to storytelling, like uh, Hooked, it's a book about how you can create habit-forming products. And it, they all follow a very similar structure. Like both of these books, it talks about this beginning, middle, and end to everything. The beginning of a habit loop, the middle, and the end of a habit loop. The beginning of a story, middle of a story, and the end of a story. And it's when you start combining these ideas, you understand that there are all of these common themes through how we communicate that you can use in different ways in different meetings to really drive the kind of change that you want to see in the product and, and the world. I'd also recommend reading the work of really good storytellers, like classical literature, but also some more modern things. Malcolm Gladwell, I think, is a wonderful storyteller, especially his ability to pull together very different narratives to paint an all-encompassing singular arc, singular story arc that communicates a complex idea. And that's something that we as product professionals have to do all the time, is how do you pull in user research, how do you pull in a design perspective, how do you pull in the engineering constraints into this story arc 
that tells people this is the what we're trying to create, here's how, here's who for, here's what the challenges are, and here's how you can get involved with it. Yeah, it's interesting the books you picked. Nier, who wrote Hooked, you know, was uh, on the podcast. In yeah. fact, he has a book that's, well, by the time this podcast publishes, will be out his new book. Dan Heath is actually a... a Dan Heath, Yeah, <laughs> Chip and Dan. Yeah, he was actually a, a keynote at Pendemonium last year. Amazing <laughs> job. Like, I mean, Dan, if you're listening, don't let this go to your ego. But it, it was the best keynote I've ever seen, right? Amazing. Brought people to tears at parts of his keynote. He did such a great job telling a story. In fact, I have tried to get him on the podcast. We'll have to keep working on that. You just keep but, loads of compliments. Yeah, loads of compliments. <laughs> <laughs> but I got like amazed by his keynote presentation. Uh, for those of you out there, if you haven't seen Dan speak, try to find him, listen to his talk. It was an amazing keynote. And then I, I think about like Shakespeare on your classical side. That's yeah. a great you know storyteller example, right? Yeah. And just fun to go back and read some of that stuff. And maybe not everyone's a fan of Shakespeare, but I happen to be. Yeah, so it does. I think it's, all it's, that's great. There's so much joy that can come from reading. Well, obviously there's joy from reading great stories, but also in learning how to tell great stories because the impact is immediate. You've told a good story in a room. You see the audience light up, and so much of our work as product professionals is presenting to people, <laughs> is, is sitting down in a room and presenting, here is a vision, or here is progress for that. And it's something that terrifies a lot of people. You know, at the amount of, even within Airbnb, where storytelling is part of our core values, public speaking is something that still terrifies everyone. And it can be something that is so enjoyable when you understand that there are frameworks you can use to construct it. So many of the presentations I, I see is where people have something to say, but they don't have a structure, so they go in and they share it, and it can be incredibly interesting and powerful things, but just not conveyed in a way that supports their outcome, and people walk away thinking, well, what do I do with this information, or why was that shared with me? It's, it's not engaging. If yeah, more people invested in storytelling, it's just so empowering with your ability to shape a vision and bring an audience on a journey. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of people think it just comes naturally to people, right? And that it's easy and that they show up and they just tell this wonderful story. But 99 times out of 100, there's a lot of hard work in the background. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, and it's, it's ours. It's, one of, it's an earned skill. I don't know any, and this is, again, coming from an acting background, I don't know anyone who was born a great storyteller. It's something that people have had to learn and hone over years of practice and failures. And I remember some of my failures in pitching competitions and me either forgetting to tell a story or telling a terrible story and the audience being aware that I started my career as an actor and that crushing defeat. (laughs) (laughs) I I remember I was in in Chile doing a a pitch competition and there's a panel of judges and it was at the end of a a weekend, a sprinting weekend, you know, when you create a product. Oh, startup weekend, there we go. So you ideated, designed a product over the course of the weekend and now you're presenting it to judges and there's an audience of 200 people there and I had been the one who was nominated to tell the story of our product, to pitch it to this judge, to these judges. And you know, my team was feeling pretty confident because I'm a storyteller and because I have experience in it. And I go up there and I bombed terribly. <laughs> like I finished the presentation and the judges said, I get the feeling that you all have created something interesting, but I have no idea what it is because the story was so bad. And that crushing moment 
was like it became this pivotal like learning. I, I realized no, I can't rely on you know this background experience. This needs hours upon hours behind the scenes, and it's been something that whenever I present, whenever I'm doing talks, even if it's a 10-15 minute conversation, I will rehearse as much as I can because it, it removes all of the things that can go wrong from the top of my brain. I get to cover all of those and I get to focus on just the joy of expressing an idea with someone else. Yeah, and I think people underestimate that every single story takes a lot of work, a lot of thinking, a lot of editing, a lot of practice to sell something that's truly you know, inspiring. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure what you saw with Dan and his, his keynote probably took hundreds of hours for it to look, I'm assuming, as, as efficient, effective, as effortless as it did when he was on stage. I certainly hope so, because it's damn good. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this has been awesome. So it's, uh, well, actually, before I go on, you mentioned something in that answer, frameworks and methodologies for, like, you know, learning how to tell a good story. Are there ones you recommend? Ultimately, the one I always come back to is the hero's journey. And I'm sure the majority of people listening to this are aware of the hero's journey. We see it in largely every single piece. I had a podcast on it, actually. Oh, oh, that was like half of my podcast. <laughs> One of the product managers I had worked with was a big fan of that. And he, we did a podcast about you know, what the hero's journey was, the components of it, and how it breaks down and helps you through guiding a story. Yeah, and so that, it's exactly that because it is so universal. And we understand and are aware of it, even if we have never studied it, because it's present in every piece of popular culture that we tune into, uh, or in every single story of popular culture that we are entertained by. So I think the simplicity, that, and then aside from that, I, I think something just to add on to that is ensuring that the hero of your story is always the user. <laughs> and it's something that can become very lost. I, I've seen presentations where the presenter, let's say they're a researcher, has positioned themselves as the hero of the story that they're telling and their journey of discovery to get these user insights. And that's not what your audience is there for. That's not what they're trying to understand. They're trying to understand the user in this instance. And so you, you have to place them at the core of this story. You know, give a sense of their life, their challenges, their hurdles, and then, you know, then paint your solution, your product um, as the solution, how it helped them on their journey towards this successful hero's outcome. Awesome. Well, let's uh, take these last few moments and, and turn the story to you. Talk to me about what your favorite product is and why it's your favorite. Oh, my favorite product. There is, I've actually got it, I've got it at home. I forget the name of the brand, but in essence, it's a chef's knife. <laughs> and a long time ago, before I wanted to be an actor, I, I trained and worked as a chef for a while. And... At that point, I kind of fell in love with the simplicity of tools at a chef's disposal. At disposal, you have you have your heat, you have your edges, you have your flat surfaces, and there's just these interesting parallels that I draw between design and working as a chef. In the sense that we all have this frontline obsession with solving something, with with creating something in response to an audience's needs. The simplicity of the tool itself to me mirrors the simplicity of actually the design process that when you really think about it and start with a problem for your user, like ideally the solution should be simple, it should not be something complicated. From a tactical point of view, I love that this tool forces me to do something with my hands and be in my body more so because it's very easy working in design to you know spend your days hunched over a computer if you're not careful. And I think that 
being able to be in our bodies and interacting with something that is more tactile than just a mouse and a screen is a very important medium switch. I, I love that the tool itself opens up this realm of cooking for me. So it's kind of just this symbol for me, really. And I just enjoy using it and cooking. That's actually what I do whenever I find myself stuck at a design problem is I go and cook something or experiment with a dish, which probably explained why I put on a lot of pounds, but that's that's just my process. <laughs> favorite dish? Favorite dish? Oh, it, it changes all the time. What's the current favorite dish? Or your fur, current favorite thing to cook? Current Maybe favorite they're not the same. dish is a sweet corn risotto with shaved truffles. Ah. And that was, I, I went to an offsite where organizing took my team on an offsite to a place called Goatlandia, which is a animal sanctuary and that specialized in goats. And as a part of this offsite, there was a cooking portion where we would cook a meal together. And one of the chefs, the only food there is, is vegan. And so it was a like a four course tasting menu with wine pairings. And I'm not vegan myself. I absolutely am more of a paleo type eater. And so, but this was the first time that I'd had an entire tasting menu that was vegan based. And one of the dishes within this was a sweet corn risotto and it was the best I've ever had. And so I kind of went away from that and have been experimenting and tinkering with making this dish. I made it last night, in fact, <laughs> just to try and get it the way I want it to be. And shaving black truffles over. Not with every experiment, because it's kind of expensive, <laughs> but <laughs> absolutely when presenting to my, my partner, I was like, yeah, let's try it. Let's just have to have a little bit to take it up a notch. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I know where I need to eat. Uh, so let's, let's finish this with uh, three words to describe yourself. Oh, I I'm anxious that. to hear these yeah, now after I, this conversation. I'm like, words? That's brutal. Three words. Uh, the first thing that jumps to mind is introverted because I'm very much an introvert. I would never have guessed that. Most people don't. <laughs> Got to thank the actors, the actors training for that. Um, yeah, no, I'm I'm a hundred percent introverted. I love one-to-one -one conversations, but conversations to a group or a team, or it's like exhausted. And oddly, people thought I was introverted at one point too. Right. So. <laughs> um, I'm gonna say actor because although it is a career that I left behind, I still feel the through line in everything that I do. It still feels like on a daily basis. I'm playing a variety of roles, as I believe we all are, as product professionals or also just generally as people. We put on different hats to achieve different goals, and I think that there's an awareness that being an actor has given me of that and the roles that people play, because that gives you the ability to speak to the role that they're playing in any given moment. And the last one, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm going to say uh, Wanderer. Uh, before joining Airbnb, I spent six, seven years traveling every two to three months pick a new country or a new city. And there was a joy that I felt and still feel with this idea of going somewhere where nothing makes sense, where you don't speak the same language, where the people are entirely different and just exploring and trying to find what's new, what's new unique about this culture and also how you are within this different environment. Well, that was awesome. Well, thank you. I, I greatly enjoyed this. <laughs> I want to know your three words. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you could take that in some different directions. Um, I once answered that as a salty ocean breeze. 
Ooh, okay. Which is how I felt that day and often do feel. Right. You know, it's, it's more, uh, if you know me well, you can kind of think of like, what does that mean? What is that alluding to? <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, I mean, if I was going to take more adjectives, I, I would go like, it varies, like it changes over time, right? You know, it's kind of interesting. Right now, I, I feel like I'm very curious about things. I love to learn mm. about things. Um, What's the last thing you learned? Oh, the last thing I learned what your favorite dish was. That's <laughs> true. That was the last thing I learned. Uh, <laughs> I do enjoy, I'm a, I enjoy cooking too. So there's definitely some things I, I continue to learn about cooking and, and picking up different dishes, right? right? And doing that type of stuff. I, I learned that I want to go back to and maybe take an improv class. I've never done that, right? And I do think of myself as like a wannabe storyteller. Uh, so I, I think that would be an interesting thing, too. What else? Uh, going back to the, the words, uh, intellectually driven, smart, I don't know, something there. Yeah. And then lately, I feel like one word that's come out is, is more empathetic, right? I don't know if that's really three words to describe myself, but it's a current way to describe myself because I spend a lot of time thinking about the word empathy and how that's important in product and in life in general. And so, what are your current thoughts about empathy? Because it's, it's very much a hot topic in... Yeah, I think, you know, I, I spend a lot of time with product people and I hear like when they describe themselves, those are one of the words that come out a lot, you know, curious, empathetic, those are very words, uh, experimentative, those kind of words, right? And I think to be good product people, we really do have to have a strong sense of empathy for our users, the people whose problems we're solving. I think it's very... I don't. I mean, I've been debating what are learned attributes and characteristics, and what have to be inherently part of like who you are. Mm -hmm. And I think part of who you are can change over time. Like you can. I remember telling this to an old girlfriend, but I think you like. She said how like she changes, and I was like, "Well, are you really changing, or are you just like that <laughs> caterpillar that becomes the butterfly kind of thing? Like, was was it always part of you, just waiting to yeah. kind of come out? Uh, so I don't know if people change over time, or it's just different parts of who they are actually become more visible. Right. But I, I do think you know that characteristic is really important on product teams is having someone, if not a lot of people on that team that have a strong sense of empathy because then they're they tend to be more passionate about which is another word I hear a lot, more passionate about uh, the problem. It might be a word I pick for myself beyond uh, one of the other ones right now too. <laughs> but uh, yes, I, I do think empathy is like, it's one of those soft skills that are really, really important for product teams. I'm, I'm, I'm in two minds about empathy. Yeah? And it's, I, I agree with you, absolutely. I, I, it's a very important, very important uh, attribute and, and behavior to express. But there's a couple of books I've been reading of recent kind of hitting home because when we think of empathy, there's a problem with an empathy, which is that it's rooted in bias. Okay. We're more likely to empathize with people who we perceive to be like us. I don't know. I agree with that. No? I, I mean, maybe that's the case in general. Yeah. I mean, I mean and I mean in a, in a general sense. I mean, even if we, let's take a completely unconnected field, um, people perceiving the experiences of someone else, like there is a... For example, in the medical field, there's studies that have been done that show that doctors perceive that black people feel less pain compared to other groups because they, although, they, see what I mean, so the empathy doesn't quite translate because there's a difference within hmm. there. And when we look at a couple of different industries, the same is true. And, I, and I'm speaking in a broad sense, not on a one-to-one -one at all. But even that, and the notion of empathy, it's also, it's very short-term, generally. And I think that that's also a bit of a problem within 
the product world, that we go in, we empathize with a group, and then typically we leave that group with these insights, and we don't bring this group back with us. <laughs> and then when we're focusing on a different part of the product, we, we've ignored this group. Yeah. And it's totally natural for us as humans to do so because you can't empathize with everyone. We don't have enough cognitive space to do so. So there, there's a couple of challenges I see within bias that I'm only really trying to figure out, teasing out, trying to understand, because I know especially in design, we anchor into bias as a designer, uh, sorry, anchor into uh, empathy as a designer's superpower. And I'm wondering if, it's, if it is the superpower or if it is just one part, one tool that we should bring to the table and endeavor to get better at exercising. I think it, well, I think it's both. I think it is a superpower, but I think it is one tool. And I, I think a lot of the stuff you talked about, about, you know, confronting and being transparent with each other's biases and our own biases, probably most importantly, is an important tool in that too. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, it's a empathy is something we can make decisions based on, but there are also other things that we can use. And I wonder if in the product world we over-index on empathy when we can use other things like logic to make a decision. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I guess for me, I came from an engineering background, mm. right? So logic has been ingrained from the beginning, right? right? I mean, I right. think of everything logically. I give my <laughs> wife a hard time when she's like, <laughs> I was like, you realize that doesn't make any logical sense, right? Same with my you, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like, I, I understand that that was like, you know, the classic story of you like drove like 30 minutes it's because something was half off, you know, and that saved you like 10 bucks, but you won't go around the corner when it's like $20 off a $400, you know, purchase, right? right. And so it makes no sense, you know, those kind of logical things, but she does it from a feeling of emotion, right? right. And, and so I guess for me, that logic has always been there. It's kind of like my baseline. And so I, but completely agree. Logic is a huge part of how we need to, <laughs> one of our tool sets. That, that is fascinating because, yeah, your, your background is more rooted in logic, mind and acting is rooted heavily in empathy. Yeah. We're taught, yeah. you know, we're taught logic doesn't exist because humans are not logical creatures kind of thing. It's like, no, we're ruled by emotions. And so that's where everything I grew up was rooted. And so I think it's maybe interesting is that we're uncovering or... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And some of mine was driven actually, I mean, I, I think it correlates and maybe was driven by my having a child, right? He was now 19 and in college and I found that my level of empathy, not just for her and her experiences and her pain and everything else she might have gone through, mm -hmm. you know, in her life, but other people's has been, you know, broadened because of that experience, right? Because of that close connection and the way it makes you think about life and challenges and struggles. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, this has been awesome, man. Yeah. I, I had a lot of fun. Me too. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people. <laughs>